So if we had a theme for this morning, it would really be that idea of littleness. It's that God can do big things in small places, unlikely places. We've got a carol for this morning that in many ways is just the perfect example of that idea of littleness. The carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, it was written by an Episcopal priest whose name was Phillips Brooks. And in 1865, Brooks had taken a trip to Bethlehem. It was in the Ottoman Empire uh, at that time. He took a trip there in 1865. It was a very inspirational trip for him. It was a very moving trip. And so three years later, in 1868, he wanted to write a poem reflecting on that experience. It's the lyrics to O Little Town of Bethlehem that we have now. But as a priest, Brooks thought it would be good if this could get some use in his church. So he went to his organist named Louis Redner, and he asked Redner, the organist, to write some music that would go with this poem. Well, like everybody else in the church in December, Redner was way too busy. He had way too much going on. Seems a little cruel of the priest to throw this at him, but that's what happened. And Brooks kept coming to Redner and saying, do you have the music written yet? Do you have the music written yet? Redner never did. Finally, it got to the Friday before they were going to use the music. They were going to sing it on Sunday during the Sunday school hour in 1868. And Brooks asked Redner, do you have the music now on the Friday before we're going to use it? Redner said, don't have it yet, but I'll have it by Sunday. So he went through the rest of his Friday and didn't have any music, didn't have an idea. He went through Saturday, same thing, just did not have any ideas for a tune. Redner said later that he put more thought into his Sunday school lesson that he was going to teach the next day than he did into the music because he, he just didn't have an idea. Preachers sometimes get a bad reputation, some of them, for putting off their work until the last minute, and I guess organists can be the same way because he went to bed on Saturday night, still did not have any music. But Redner said that he woke up in the middle of the night and had the idea for the tune that we have now for O Little Town of Bethlehem. He grabbed a sheet of paper and wrote it down real quick so he didn't forget it, and then went back to sleep. He woke up the next morning, and on his way to church, he finished it, finished out the harmony on the way to church. And he thought, you know what, I threw this together, but it's fine. This is a one-time deal, right? We're going to sing this in one church, one Sunday in 1868. Nobody will ever sing it again, so this is good enough. But of course, here we are, 150 years later, still singing that carol. It's a little carol that turned out to be a pretty big thing. The opening words of the carol are, O little town of Bethlehem. And that really takes us to the second moment of littleness, because Bethlehem truly is a very little place. Even today, it's, it's not a big city. It's bigger than it used to be in, in the ancient world. But it's not a big city even today. But in antiquity, it was even smaller. It's probably about two or 300 people. This village is located about six miles to the south of Jerusalem. And it is a very little place, a very humble place. And that small size of Bethlehem, it really illustrates a pretty common biblical theme, that when God is going to do something great, human estimates about size or about importance, they really don't count for much. Bethlehem was a small place, but it turned out to be the hometown of King David. King David was later remembered as one of Israel's, really the greatest king that Israel ever produced. King David was the king that all future kings looked back to and just aspired 
to be like him. It's kind of like our presidents today might want to be as good a president as Lincoln was or Washington. That's how David was for the kings of Israel. He was that almost mythical guy that everybody wanted to be, but nobody could quite catch up to. And he came from this humble village of Bethlehem. And if that's not enough, David himself had obscure beginnings in this fairly obscure town. When David was proclaimed king, he really wasn't very much to look at. The prophet Samuel had been told by God to go to Bethlehem and go to David's family to find the new king. God told Samuel that a new king would be found and anointed somewhere in David's family. So Samuel went to Bethlehem, he found David's family, and he asked David's dad to bring all the sons in and let him look at them because one of them would be the new king. So David's dad brought in all his sons. Samuel looked at the first one, the oldest one, and he thought, this must be the guy. This guy looks great. He's strong. He's strapping. He's handsome. He looks like a king. But the scripture says in 1 Samuel that God told Samuel, don't look at his height. Don't look at his appearance because I've rejected him. God looks at things differently than people do. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so Samuel goes through all the sons. Each one is not the king. God says, that's not the guy. Finally, the prophet Samuel gets to the last son, and God has not chosen any of them. And Samuel says to David's dad, you know, we've got a problem here because God told me to come here and find the king in your family. None of these boys are the king. Do you have any other sons? And David's dad says, well, I do have this one other kid, but he wasn't even important enough to bring to the meeting. He's out in the field with the sheep, but I guess we could get him if you want to. And Samuel says, you better go get him. We're not doing anything else until he gets here. David comes in, the smallest, runtiest child, and God's spirit says to Samuel, get up and anoint this one. This is the one. From that obscure beginning, that small beginning, David goes on to become the greatest king that Israel had. It's a theme that occurs over and over in the Bible. If God is going to do something big, it often comes from that place that you would least expect. And that theme of littleness is really taken up in our scripture that we'll read for today, which comes from the prophet Micah. We'll be reading Micah chapter 5. If you would like to follow along, follow along on the screen, that would probably be the easiest thing to do. If you want to find it in your own Bible, then I wish you luck in your search. You will go to the Old Testament, find some of the biggest prophets that we sometimes read, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then you'll keep going to a section of 12 minor prophets that unfortunately never really get read. So you'll go through Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, and then get to Micah. So Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. The scripture says this. But from you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has brought forth. Then the rest of his kindred shall return to the people of Israel. This ruler, he shall stand and feed his flock, in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They shall live secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be one of peace. 
Now, notice these three things that are said to come forth from Bethlehem. This place that's supposed to be little. It's supposed to be a very meek, insignificant place. First, Micah promises that a new ruler will come from this village. A new ruler will come in verse 2. Now, that situates Micah's words really squarely in the, in the vein of God's past promises. David, as we said, he was from Bethlehem. And God had promised David that there would always be a king on David's throne. There would always be some king to continue the line of David. And for very many years, that had been true. There always was a king on David's throne. Sometimes the kings were really terrible, but at least there was a king there. But in the year 586, all that seemed to be broken when the Babylonian Empire invaded the land, deposed the last king, and carried many people away into exile. It seemed like God's promise to David had been broken. But among some people, that hope remained that God had not forsaken his promise, that somehow God would raise up a new ruler who would make everything right again, who would bring back those old glory days. And passages like Micah 5 here really encouraged that hope. To place the birth of a new ruler in David's town puts that person right in the line to continue God's promises. And the Gospel of Matthew tells us that Jesus was later born in Bethlehem. Matthew also tells us that astrologers from the east, wise men we call them today often, they had seen some kind of sign in the sky that they interpreted to be about the birth of a new king. They came to Israel to find that new king. They went to the capital of Jerusalem, talked to Herod, who was the, by all appearances the king. Herod certainly thought that he was the king. And the wise men asked Herod, where is this person, this new king who was born? Herod doesn't know what they're talking about. He's worried because he thinks he is the new king. So he gets a council of priests and scribes together and asks, where will this new king come from? And they respond by quoting Micah chapter 5, verse 2 here. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule in Israel. So Bethlehem was a little town. It was not very much to look at. But first the great King David was born there, and later the great King Jesus was born there. It was a small place, but it was a place that God could use to do things that were much bigger than humans ever expected. The second thing that Micah promises is that a shepherd will come forth who will care for people through the power of God. We see this in verse 4, where Micah says, He shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Now Micah is drawing on language about shepherding to describe this new ruler that was very common language at the time. Many rulers were talked about as shepherds. The, the ruler, the king, was the shepherd. The people in the country were the flock of sheep. And so the ruler was like the shepherd who cared for all of those people. So on the one hand, the language is very, very ordinary, in a sense, for the time. But I love the spin that Micah puts on it. Because he says that this ruler is not going to draw on his own strength to do this shepherding, but on God's strength. And this ruler will not do the shepherding for his own glory, but for God's glory. And I just love that emphasis. It's not that the shepherd draws on his strength to feed the flock, 
He can't do it. Have you ever tried to do something on your own without God's help? You know, maybe you did it intentionally. Maybe you formulated a plan and thought, you know what, I don't care what God thinks, this is what I'm going to do. Or maybe it was more accidental. It wasn't so much that you meant to leave God out, but that's what happened. Right? You knew what you wanted to do, and you just kind of did it and didn't think too much about God at, at all. But either way, I've been there, tried to do it without, without God, and it has never ended well for me. But Jesus is really the person who knows most of all that on our own, we're powerless. We see this very often in, in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus tells his disciples, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Jesus was the person who most understood who most lived out what Micah is saying here, that in our own strength we can't do anything. This shepherd will shepherd people through the strength of the Lord, and that's how Christ lived his life. Micah also notes the shepherd is going to do this in the strength of the Lord and for the glory of the Lord, for the majesty of the Lord. And again, Jesus is the person who most lives that out. I can't think of really any better description of Christ than a shepherd who cares for people in the strength of the Lord for the glory of the Lord. That theme of glory comes up over and over in John 2. In John chapter 14, for example, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to answer their prayers, but he goes on to say the reason he will answer prayers is so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. When we celebrate the birth of Christ each Christmas, we're really celebrating the birth of that shepherd figure who cares for us, but who cares for us through the strength of God and for the glory of God. Finally, this passage from Micah ends with this promise of a source of peace that's going to come from Bethlehem. The shepherd who's to come from Bethlehem will be one of peace, Micah says. In Hebrew, the word that we translate peace there is the word shalom, and peace is really... It's a perfectly fine translation of the word. It's, it's what it would mean, most literally. But we can tell from other ways this word is used that the Hebrew people had a much more expansive concept of peace than we do. We think of peace really in the negative. Peace is the absence of something. If you don't have conflict, if you don't have war, then you have peace. But for the Hebrew people, peace seems to have been much more expansive. It seems like they thought of it really in the positive sense. From the ways that the word shalom is used, we can tell there are some instances when shalom, peace, means something more like wholeness. Sometimes it means tranquility, sometimes health, sometimes prosperity, sometimes harmony, sometimes well-being. It's a much more expansive idea, a positive idea, peace that encapsulates really body and soul. So when Micah says that the shepherd is going to come out of Bethlehem and is going to bring peace, all those ideas are wrapped up in that. The shepherd will bring this well-being that encapsulates our entire lives. That peace was meant to come from this shepherd in Bethlehem, but of course that peace doesn't always come. We don't often experience that. 
in Bethlehem today, there's a church, which you can see a picture of on the screen. It's the Church of the Nativity. It's the oldest major church in the Holy Land. And the Church of the Nativity is built over a cave. The first Christians believed that there was a cave that was the, the stable where Mary and Joseph were when Jesus was born. It wasn't an actual building, but a cave was what some of the first Christians believed. That cave's actually the oldest uh, continuous place of worship in the world that has kind of been worship at that point continuously from ancient times up to today. It's this cave. But in that cave, there is this 14-pointed, it has 14 points, multi-pointed star, silver star in the floor that was meant to mark the place where Jesus was supposed to have been born. That was the exact spot. But this is the interesting part. That star was installed in the year 1717, and in the year 1848, the star was stolen. And the theft of that star was one of the main factors, really, that led to the outbreak of the Crimean War. That's very ironic. This spot that's supposed to mark the place of the, the birth of the Prince of Peace really led to the outbreak of a war. It was complicated. There were a lot of factors that went into the war, but one of the main factors was that some countries felt like the rights of Christians in the Holy Land weren't being honored, weren't being respected. We've got people running around stealing the star that marks his birthplace. And some countries weren't okay with that, and it eventually developed into a war. The Crimean War involved over a dozen nations, lasted two years, killed hundreds of thousands of people. It's so tragic that from this small place that was supposed to be the birthplace of peace, a small place and a small incident brings forth this war. Now, sometimes today we still fight wars over faith, but more often in our context, faith seems to lead to interpersonal conflict instead. Some of the nastiest spats, the ugliest feuds that you're ever going to see often happen within the church. It involves people who supposedly follow the Prince of Peace. Sometimes it's Christians fighting people outside the church. That can happen too. But it seems that Christians sometimes are not immune to that conflict. Now, most of us find ourselves there at some point. We often have a moment when we kind of feel that anger, that conflict rising up in us, that desire to pick a fight, have a fight with someone. And sometimes that anger might be justified, but I really think it's worth asking ourselves when we feel that conflict rising up in us, we want to direct that at other people in the church or people outside the church, whatever it might be, to stop and ask ourselves, is what's happening in us, is this feeling that's rising up in us, is that reflective of the shalom, of the peace that Micah says was meant to be ours? The message of Micah 5 is that from this little place, from this very small village in Bethlehem, something big comes. This new ruler who will shepherd people. This shepherd who will do it all in the strength of the Lord for the glory of the Lord. And this person who will bring peace. All that came from this little place where these great things eventually developed from. And it's really not always in our places of strength that we encounter God today. Now, it may happen sometimes that in the places where we're strong, where we're thriving, the places where we're excelling, maybe sometimes we do 
encounter God there. But our faith teaches us that very often God is most able to work when we meet God in our places of littleness, of meekness and weakness. In 1 Corinthians, Paul tells the Corinthian Christians to think about the way that faith first arose among them. And Paul tells the Corinthian Christians this in chapter 1. He says, Consider your own calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. God chose the things that are nothing to nullify all the things that are something so that no one might boast before God. Paul tells the Corinthians, it was in your littleness that God met you. It's not in your greatness. This morning, I'd really like to ask you to consider what that place of littleness in your life is. Where's the part of your life where you really maybe don't see much evidence of God at work? Maybe it's the place where you have the least hope in your life. Really, the last, the last place that you would expect God to show up and meet you there. Where is that place? And what would it mean for you to open yourself to God's involvement in your life at that spot? The last verse of O Little Town of Bethlehem It says, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our fears and enter in. Be born in us today. If Christ is really going to be born again in your heart this Christmas, if you're really going to meet him there, it's almost certainly going to be in your place of littleness, not in your place of strength and greatness. So we'll close in worship this morning by singing a a fairly familiar song, I think. This is Amazing Grace. And as we sing, I'd really invite you to think about that place in your life, that little place, that small place, that spot that seems insignificant and weak. And then as you sing, to celebrate God's amazing grace that through Christ wants to meet you there in that place. God wants the Messiah to to be born in, and to work in that spot of littleness in your life. Would you open your heart today to meet him there?